My name is Katie Wiggins. You're listening to Nearly Departed. Chapter 1. The Letters Her hands fell on a spine that felt different than the others. After rows of paperbacks creased and creaked beyond their limits and dusty old fabric-bound hardcovers with their titles chipped away through the decades, this row was squeezed tight with thick, uniform books, all the same cornflower shade of blue, with no identifying words on their spines. She slid one of the tomes from the shelf of its twins and saw that it wasn't a book at all. A faded, floral cover when opened, revealed not the first of five hundred or so pages, but a hollow. It was a box. Inside the faux book were envelopes of every kind, bulging with the act of their contents being read and resealed. The woman whose hands gently sifted through the envelopes was named Gwen. The only thing that united the letters, besides their location in the box, was their addresses. Victoria Kandinsky, 18 George Lane. Gwen looked around the stuffed attic room. It was octagonal, its walls simple wooden slats, and its floor padded with layers of fraying rugs. Across many of the walls stretched narrow bookshelves bursting with their contents, hanging model air balloons, delicate little figurines ice skating and ballet dancing. There was a Victorian dollhouse, a vessel filled with canes, a Roman shield, and in the place of honor, facing the largest window in the room at the top of this old teetering house, was a writing desk. Gwen eyed a basket of marionettes, wondering if they might give her a hint as to whether to proceed or not. Their dull, smiling expressions didn't change, so she gently set the box of letters on the desk and began to read. Dear Miss Kandinsky, I guess it started when we moved to a new house. I feel like I knew something was off right away. I'm only 13, but I know the difference between imagination and reality, and something has been coming out of my closet. Ever since my wife had a new baby, something has been terrorizing us. I first noticed it when I was watching him. Dear Miss Kandinsky, my grandma visited me in my dreams last night, and it felt so real, I had to tell you. They were all like this. Some typed, some scrawled hastily. But they were all brushes with the unexplained, recounted with the intimacy of a diary to Miss Victoria Kandinsky, the former owner of the home. Gwen took in the letters, her soft body curved like a crescent moon over them, hungry for the treasure she had unearthed. She pulled out a satisfyingly well-padded beige envelope with the maroon print of a college name across the bottom. The thick pages inside matched the high-quality envelope, and were covered with blue ballpoint pen, out of place on the professional stationery, probably purchased by a parent in the university library, in hopes of seeing the letters again in their mailbox filled with the recounting of age-appropriate risk, challenge, and growth they would hope for their college student. Gwen looked out the small window and strained her ears to hear if she was needed. She heard nothing in the house but distant music, and saw her neighbor walking his Dalmatian across the street. She settled in then, and read. September 26, 2014. Dear Miss Kandinsky, it followed me here. I'm Cody Bernard. I'm a freshman in college where I'm studying English and political science. 
The campus is huge and beautiful. It looks like the textbook image of an American university. And I managed to live in a dorm that looks like a concrete block with windows. I had a roommate at first, but he was really weird and ended up transferring or leaving or something because after like two weeks together, I come home and his side of the room was totally stripped and the student life guy from my dorm said that he wouldn't be coming back. So I've been alone the past couple of weeks. At first, I thought I was super lucky. I'm already feeling less than cheerful at living in a cube of stinky freshmen. And having a stranger sleep four feet away from me made me feel like I needed to start hammering at the wall behind my poster to one day escape. Nothing happened at first. And I was so busy with all the new stuff to get used to, I forgot to even look for it. Then, last week, in an attempt at fraternal bonding, I discovered my body can't process alcohol. I took many shots of a cinnamon whiskey known as Fireball for the first time with some guys from my floor. I had only ever had beer before, and I was swiftly instructed in the difference. I felt really good for about 90 minutes, and then got absolutely manhandled by what I assume was a hangover, though it felt like organ failure, before I even got a chance to go to sleep. A preemptive hangover. I left my new comrades to their Madden, and decided to just lie on the cold tile of the common bathroom stall from like 2 to 4 a.m., watching Samantha Brown's travel show on my laptop and waiting for God to kill me, which is a new personal low. So I'm in the stall, and I hear someone come in. I'm bracing myself for the embarrassment of being seen with my legs splayed under the stall looking like a murder victim, but I don't see any feet, and I don't hear anything else. I think maybe someone just poked their head in or something, or maybe an RA was on duty or whatever, And when they saw my sweaty legs and heard Samantha Brown go surfing in Key West, they left me to my crime scene. Eventually, I feel good enough to go back to my room, which is only like 10 feet away. I get in bed, and when I'm finally settled, something shifts in the room, and suddenly I'm overwhelmed by dread. It just feels horrible, and this time it's not just my organs rejecting me. I'm looking around the dark corners of the room, and I just know something is about to happen, but I can't look away. I notice movement, and I see the door to the vertical dresser just creak slowly open. It was my roommate's dresser, so it's empty, or it should have been, because I can see in the darkness that something is inside, blocking my view to the back corner of the dresser interior. I just turn over, shut my eyes, and play Samantha Brown until I fall asleep eventually. The next morning, I had forgotten about it for a while until I closed the dresser door without thinking about it, and it all came back to me. Then this week happened. I was walking home from getting lunch with a few guys from my English lecture. The school is right off of the little downtown strip of the town, and the dorms and school buildings are right up against regular homes and neighborhoods. So we're walking on the sidewalk. It's still a bit early for fall, but it feels like the sound of the leaves has changed, like they've gotten more papery, even if they're still mostly green. Parentheses. I'm taking a creative writing class, and our prof keeps saying, details, say more, say more. Pretty good, right? Close parentheses. We're walking by a row of nice, old little houses, and I see him behind me. 
Neither of the guys I'm with seem to notice, but I glance behind us, and he was walking about 50 feet back. My heart sank so low, I literally wanted to cry. He looked how he always does, just like a regular older man. He stoops forward and wears a beige jacket and khakis and a flat, like, cap. And he just stoops and shuffles so slowly, but he's always the same distance away. His face is blurry, but I can make out a large, sagging nose and heavy eyelids, but I've never seen his eyes. He seems to be looking down as he walks. And he has a dog. I'm a dog person, but this animal is different. It looks like a greyhound mostly, from what I've googled. It has this muscular, thin body that sort of curves downwards. It's pale like the man's clothes with these gray, sickly spots that splatter his legs. Its eyes are dark and reddish, and its mouth is always hanging open. And it walks with the man, no leash. It's making me nauseous, even to write about it, but I feel worse when I pretend it's not happening. I think it started when I was really little. I remember hating going to sleep because I would see an old man staring into my room from the window. The first time I told them, my mom freaked, and my dad ran out into the yard with a gun. When he didn't find anyone, he decided my imagination was making a man from the tree branches and wouldn't be bothered about it anymore. He would get furious if I continued to bring it up, telling me to buck up. Eventually, I started waking up in the middle of the night and hearing someone moving around in the attic above my head, endlessly pacing. I knew better at this point than to bring it up to my dad, but my mom put in a nightlight and tried to get Rocky, our lab, to sleep in my room. But something happened at nighttime, and Rocky would get restless and start pawing at my door almost as soon as I got into bed. Then, after a couple years, the man and his dog started showing up in the corner of my room. I'm a movie guy, and I had this mammoth of a TV in my room on a bookshelf with all my DVDs and VHSs. I would fall asleep to the TV every night, Nick at night mostly, and I'd know he was there because around 4 a.m. my eyes would open and the room would be too dark. I knew someone was standing in front of the TV, blocking its staticky haze. I would just squeeze my eyes shut and think, go away, go away, go away, go away, go away, and just turn around until somehow my fear burnt itself out and I could sleep. Eventually, I started dragging a blanket to the living room around midnight and then creeping back into my bedroom before my parents woke up in the morning. I knew if my dad found out I was still afraid, he would be furious. And my mom would just be a ball of silent worry, so I just decided to handle it myself. I thought, ultimately, he's never hurt me. He probably can't hurt me. So if I can just learn to deal with it, I'll be okay. But I was wrong. When I was around 13... I was home alone watching TV in the living room. It was supposed to be a really snowy day, and my parents had taken my sister to go grocery shopping before the snow picked up too much. But I wanted to stay and watch TV. I'd eaten a bunch of bowls of cereal. I remember I was watching Robocop, which is tied for my favorite movie with Blade Runner Final Cut, by the way. And I heard something slam in my room. I thought our cat had knocked over furniture or a picture frame had fallen, so I went to see what it was. I still remember sliding across the wood floor in these Homer Simpson slippers I had. They looked like I was stepping into his mouth. 
At first they were funny, but after they got a little dingy, they became pretty gruesome. I couldn't see anything weird in my room, but I heard something shift in my closet. I think it's Emily. That's my sister's cat. So I open the closet door and look around to see if she's gotten on a shelf that she can't get down from. And something shoved me inside and locks the door. It's pitch black and I start freaking out. I think I immediately thought a burglar or something, so I'm trying to yank the doorknob and I'm pounding on the door. But in the dark, when I drop my hands, I feel hot breath on one of them at waist level. I really flip then and as my eyes are adjusting, I'm starting to see the shape of the man's nose and his hat in the dark with me. And I'm feeling this panting dog. I'm wild at this point, and finally the doorknob turns and I can escape. I hear that my parents have gotten home in the other room, and there's nothing in the closet. He's never locked me in anywhere since, but he likes to show up when I'm vulnerable. Just remind me he's watching. It had gotten a lot quieter my senior year. I feel like I was just trying to shut down that part of my brain. I bought a used car and was hanging out a lot in parking lots with my friends, which was the premier activity for youth enrichment in my town. For other reasons than just ghosts, I was trying to spend less time hanging around at home. The thing is, it wasn't ever just him. He's the worst, absolutely, and I I don't know exactly what he is, but I've always been able to see people I shouldn't have. But they didn't scare me as much. Mostly I thought they were regular people until they would disappear in front of me. It was mostly boring, actually. We'd visit a historical home for a field trip and I could see that a lady in a hoop skirt was hiding from us in the bedroom. The first time I drove out to the lake with my girlfriend, I made some excuse for us to go somewhere else because a woman who had died in a bridge collapse wouldn't leave me alone. But it was harmless, and few and far between. I wasn't a hokey medium, and I'm not cut out to help people or do exorcisms or wear a pendulum or something. So it felt like the weirdness was pretty much behind me, until I came here, and I don't know what to do. I think I'll probably just keep ignoring him. I should probably tell my mom. But it worries her so much, I feel so sad letting her down. She probably hoped we had seen the end of him too. Maybe next time I see him, I'll just tell him to screw off or something. All I've ever tried is ignoring him, and he keeps coming back. And I just can't, I can't keep having this thing in the corner of my eye, in the back of my mind. I'm so tired of being afraid. Anyway, thanks for listening. How are my details? Cody. There was the sound of something huge tipping over, falling a good distance, sliding at considerable speed, and crashing again. Gwen jumped and stared unseeingly at the space above the letter, 
waiting until she heard a faint, I'm okay, from the hallway. She folded up the letter hastily back into its envelope and went to investigate. At the bottom of the shiny mahogany stairs, Oscar looked up at Gwen and smiled. I had a small accident, he said, gesturing needlessly to the massive and crumpled cardboard box labeled skeletons. He waded through the jumbled rib cages and femurs, attempting to separate and reorganize the bones. Oscar had been Gwen's best friend since third grade, and in exchange for a room, he was helping with projects around the large Victorian home she had been shocked to inherit. And the house was happy to provide endless work. Oscar may have looked like a handyman. He had the build of a short, sturdy lumberjack, and he was very good at fixing things. But he emanated gentleness and grace, and his interior world was dominated by late 80s design trends and films about women going insane. Unsure of what to do with his life, he had been acquiring master's degrees in those exact topics until Gwen invited him to a cold city he had never been to, to a street shaded by yawning old trees, and to a house on that street whose every inch breathed of personality and magic. He had packed up his closet of an office at the university at once. Up in the attic, he was trying to clean and organize though he kept stopping to gasp at the discarded things he found in boxes up there, stuffed with the decades of accumulation from the home's previous owner, Victoria Kandinsky. He had been examining the lace from an ancient baptism gown, about an inch from his eyes, when a box of Halloween decorations had toppled over from the precarious stack it had been placed on. It tumbled through the attic opening, hitting a banister, sliding down the stairs, and scattering like bowling pins against the wall of the stairs landing. Without flinching, he gently folded the lacy white garment neatly into a square and descended the ladder. Gwen had jumped about a foot when she heard the crash, the image of the man and his cap and his dog feeling sickeningly close. But it was just Oscar, wearing the clip-on earrings of a dead woman, and wading through old plastic skeletons whose bones had unhooked from their spinal columns. "'Excuse me, gentlemen,' he said, grabbing a series of plastic skulls through the eyes and walking them to the sunroom to reconstruct, his crocs flapping against the wood floor. Gwen couldn't get the letter out of her mind. 2014, it had said. She wondered where Cody was now, if he had had any success being more aggressive with the spirit. Could she write him?' No, she wasn't even meant to be reading them. They were all addressed to the former owner of the home. Did that mean they should stay private forever? Maybe she could have given them to a relative of Miss Kandinsky, but she had no living family, which, as she and Oscar tried to sift through her belongings, they became increasingly saddened by. A greedy relative who wanted to poach all of her valuables would make their jobs much easier. Well, some people did come. In the weeks following her funeral, people had appeared searching for certain items. It started with a man with a grisly beard and gigantic fur coat, who knocked on the door with his cane. He held a letter delicately by the corner and gestured for Gwen to take it. In it, in Miss Kandinsky's elaborate hand, was the promise for him to take whatever he required from her estate when she was, quote, finally vanquished. Gwen was so astonished by his appearance, she just let him float into the home and up the stairs. He returned soon after with a silver box and one of the cats that lived in the home, which nestled comfortably in his furry arm, and left without a word. Thus began the parade of elderly eccentrics into Gwen's new home, 
each with their own letters, all dated from the 60s through the 80s, and each leaving with their own strange treasure, and often one of the cats. Gwen allowed them to do this unsupervised, not only because they all gave off vaguely threatening auras, but also because she felt she had hardly any right to the home as it was. Miss Kandinsky had hired Gwen to keep her company and help with her projects three years before she had died. They'd grown close because of their constant proximity, but very, very slowly, Miss Kandinsky's life remained extremely mysterious to Gwen. Miss Kandinsky behaved as though there was never enough time to waste on telling stories about the past, because the task at hand was so enthralling. These enthralling tasks ranged from turning a bedroom into a tiny theater space, stage curtains, lights and all, one-upping her neighbor's holiday decorations, or finding a specific tiny book among the hundreds scattered throughout the home. Miss Kandinsky moved from passion project to passion project, but luckily the problems she presented Gwen to solve captured Gwen's imagination practically as much as Miss Kandinsky's. In the following days, Gwen returned to the highest little library room often, succumbing entirely to her desire to read all the letters. Had Miss Kandinsky advertised? Did she put flyers on people's windshields or put a notice in the paper for people to send their encounters with the strange and unusual? Gwen pictured the woman she had known, her short, fluffy hair, her impossibly soft olive skin, and her sparkling dark eyes under the weight of a turban and her nose pressed against a crystal ball in an advertisement or commercial. But no one was asking for psychic advice, necessarily, or any kind of expertise. In all the letters she read, some deeply chilling, some lightly spooky, and some extremely weird and unexplainable, none of the writers ever indicated how or why they had come to write to her. They wrote with these fervent, paranormal confessions, with the ease of writing to a trusted confidant. Gwen realized if Miss Kandinsky had written back to them, she would have no record of that. But she somehow sensed that just knowing that someone was reading them was why these writers took the trouble. Uniting many of the letters was a sense of isolation, a feeling alone with their secrets and the relief of being able to be totally honest. Of those with ongoing hauntings, many had partners or parents or roommates who didn't believe them, or who they didn't share the extent of their experiences with out of a desire not to scare them. Many writers endured their experiences as an enormous burden they felt they must shoulder alone, and Miss Kandinsky seemed to have offered them a place to put the truth, without concern or caveat or forced optimism or problem-solving. For breakfast one day, Gwen and Oscar sat together at the small circular table in the sunroom. Gwen had given Oscar a trunk of caftans she had found, and he had taken to wearing them as house dresses. Gwen tended to wear a uniform of all the softest neutral colors she could pile on top of each other, with rings on every finger and her wispy pale hair swirled up into a bun. Sitting next to Oscar with his fuchsia flamingo pattern caftan, they looked like retired dance teachers in Boca Raton. The white wicker chairs and their pastel 80s cushions didn't help. The sunroom was her favorite room, with several little nooks for sitting and having coffee and reading like it was a bed and breakfast or a cruise ship deck, and a few enormous ferns and heavy ceramic pots that were older than her. 
They were flipping through an old interior design book together of celebrity homes that they had found when Gwen heard the door's mail slot creak. She left Leonard Bernstein's living room page to collect the strange magazines that Miss Kandinsky still had months of subscription left on. But on top of the pile was a hand-addressed envelope. To Gwen. It was a bright, high-quality pink envelope that looked like it might house a birthday greeting card. Gwyneth Gibson, 18 George Lane. She didn't recognize the return address, but slid the thick envelope open and retrieved the stationery from its shiny gold interior, cramped with delicate cursive. Dear Gwen, the vines were so overgrown that the door to the old cabaret was completely hidden. Sitting in my car, I double-checked the address, making sure it was the right place. Gwen glanced over her shoulder and stuffed the contents back into the envelope. Another ghost story. Her eyes fell on the face of Miss Kandinsky from the top shelf of a wicker bookshelf layered densely with photographs. It was a black-and-white 8x10 photo, and Miss Kandinsky was smiling mischievously over her cocktail, wrapped in a caftan, her eyebrow raised as if to say, Oh, don't look so surprised. You've been listening to Nearly Departed, the first episode in the fall season which culminates in the last week of October. If you'd like to support me and the show, rate and review and tell a friend. You can also grab some fantastic vintage-inspired merch, both for this show and for my other spooky show, on my TeePublic link. If you'd like to contact me, or if you have a paranormal experience you'd like to get off your chest, email me at dearmisskandinsky at gmail.com. It's dear, M-I-S-S-K-A-N-D-I-N-S-K-Y. See you next time, my sweet little creeps. <laughs>